If you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Timothy chapter 4. You can follow along there as we work through 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 6 to the end of the chapter this week, by God's grace. And we will be examining Paul's words to Timothy. And as we have said before, say it again, this is a, a very personal letter. It is, on one level, it almost reads, especially the section that we are getting to, it almost reads like a private letter, as if Paul is writing only for Timothy's eyes and ears. In fact, one of the things that is remarkable about the section we are getting to, and that will now is going to shape the letter going forward, is that as Paul is writing, he directs numerous commands, 40 commands, to Timothy in particular. He has, per, he has Timothy in mind as he is writing this. This is a, a personal letter. It is personal from Paul to this pastor, Timothy. But more than that, it is not just a personal letter. It is definitely not a private letter only to be read by Timothy. It is a public letter. It is a letter that Timothy and the entire church there at Ephesus and the churches beyond were to read. So even as he is directing these words to Timothy, Paul has in mind that the church to whom Timothy is pastoring, that Timothy is serving, that they themselves would hear, that believers would hear, and that they would evaluate and to think on what he is writing particularly to Timothy here. And it's important because Timothy, as he is pastoring this church, his church is going through all sorts of issues. And Paul is directing Timothy on how the church is to operate, how it is to function. That it may be, we saw this in recent weeks, chapter 3, verse 15, that the church may be a pillar. It may be a buttress of the truth. That it, is, it may hold the truth and the glory of God high. That's the whole purpose of the church, that we may hold the, the truth of the gospel clearly and highly. But Timothy, here as he is pastoring this church, Paul is addressing issues in the church, encouraging Timothy on how the church is to be structured, on how it is to be organized, on what the church is to teach, on what is to guard against. And now he is going to give Timothy particular encouragement. We might say even admonishment. It's it's strong language here about what it is for him to be a pastor. About what is required of pastors, elders, missionaries, church leaders. What is expected of them. I want you to imagine if you, those of you who work, if you were to go into the office tomorrow, and as you went into the office, your boss called a, a, a meeting for everyone there. Everyone in the company was to gather up and there in front of everyone, the boss would begin to lay out for everyone to see what your job description is. And not just your particular job description, but then all of the qualities that are required for you to be a good worker in your position. You might rightly feel a little threatened by that, wouldn't you? Your next stop after the visit, after that meeting might be to HR. What was that about? Was he trying to tell me something? 
That's a bit what Paul's doing here. He is laying out for the entire church the qualities, the character traits, the, the essentials of the task of those who lead a church. And you can understand why. For those of us who have, for those of us who follow Christ, we're called to be a part of a church. We need to know what ought we to expect from those who lead churches. If you are a teenager or a young adult and you're planning on moving away, you need to know what should I want, what should I look for in a pastor? What do I, what do I, what do my church leaders need to display? What do they need to be like? It goes well beyond, well, I like the way he dresses. I like the way he communicates. He's entertaining. He's funny. He's, a, he's really smart and knowledgeable. It needs to go beyond, beyond all of those things. Paul has other things in mind. Not that some things aren't important, but there are more important things at stake. More than that, if you're not a Christian, you know how important this is. If you're not a Christian, you have probably seen in the news reports of how many church leaders and pastors have abandoned any semblance of what it looks like to follow Jesus in their life. This is most notable when it's a a pastor of a very large church and there is some significant failure. And you know that that isn't right. The question is, what is a pastor to do? So on one level, this is a personal letter. But another level, it is a public letter. It is meant to be instruction for all of us. But you will remember that even as a pastor and as elders, they are to lead the church. It is not merely for them. While these things are to characterize them, it, they are to lead the way in these things so that others may follow. So on one level, many of these things need to be true of all Christians not just those who lead in a particular local church. So what makes for a good elder, a good deacon? What makes for a good pastor? What makes for a good missionary? That's the question here. And and Paul is getting there. You see in verse 6, Paul says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake. What will it be? to be a good minister. Or really, the word isn't just minister. Some of you have a different word there in your translations. The word is servant. Really, the word is deacon. You will be a good deacon, a good deacon of the word, a good servant of the word, a good servant of God's people, one who is called to lead in a particular way. If you will teach these things, if you will do these things, then you will be a good minister. And that's that's what we need to aim for. So as we approach this, as we approach this text, this is a text that is going to hit those of us in particular who are in church leadership. It is going to hit in particular those who may aspire to church leadership, which Paul, in the beginning of chapter 3, says those who desire the office of elder. That is a good and noble desire. That's a good thing. You should aspire to that. But it hits all of us because we are all given various areas of influence. 
Various, that circle of influence may be small, may be large. The Lord is the one who determines what that circle is. We are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, and that's going to look a certain way. So as we begin this text, would you join me in a word of prayer as we seek the Lord's help as we study his word. Father, give us grace that your word may be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That in all things we may follow after you and imitate Christ. Teach us this morning what to expect, what to demand of others and of ourselves. Help us, we pray, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. There in verse 6 to 10, Paul lays out the qualities of a good servant. He says, if you instruct the brother in these things, the brethren, or you might translate the brothers and sisters in Christ. There that word brethren is a general generic term. It includes all of the believers in that location, all of the believers at that church. If you will instruct them in in these things. And that word instruct is important. It has the idea of if you will set the table, if you'll put things before them. You create a dish, you create a meal, and you, you set the table to make it attractive. You, you put it all before them. That's what he's talking about. And these things are the things that he has described from chapters 1 to up till now. Christ is alone the supreme mediator between God and man. That there are distortions that threaten to undermine our confidence in Christ and we need to reject those. More than that, we need to remember the Christian, that the goodness of all that God has created and the Christian's freedom to enjoy all that he has made in the ways that he has designed. Ultimately, it is to put before others the word of God. If you instruct the brethren, if you instruct believers in these things, you will be a good servant, a good minister of Jesus Christ. So pastors, what does that mean? What does that look like? If, you're going, if we are going to instruct others in this way, what do you need from your pastors? And what will you, if you are going to help others, what will be required of you? We see this in the very next line. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, nourished or being nourished, nourished in the words of faith or being instructed in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. That word being trained in or nourished, it has the idea of of feeding yourself on, of growing steadily and healthy and strong in, of being trained by, If you are going to serve others, you must first nourish your own soul. You cannot lead others to the well of spiritual water if you have not drunk of it. And so he says, you nourished in the words of faith. Here he's speaking of of what is required, what needs to be expected and desired for pastors and church leaders. That they be encouraged demanded that they are following the Lord themselves, that they are nourishing their own souls, training their own minds in the things of God's word. And this can't be past tense, it is, it is present tense. 
This is more than just some form of academic education and seminary education in the past. That is, this is someone who is actively engaging with and feeding on God's word. Not merely to check a box off, but someone who goes to the Lord, goes to God's word, and is putting themselves under it to gather and to gain, to know him, to feed on him. If we are to feed others, we must first be fed ourselves. Friends, brothers, this means that you must study the word. It means that you need to give space for your pastors to study the word. It means you ought to desire that I and others who are preaching and teaching, that they are actively studying, that they set time aside. That studying God's word is not an is not a nicety. It is actually what you have called us to do. If we are going to serve you well, we must be nourished on God's word ourselves. You need it. How dare someone walk into the pulpit or walk to a lectern who has merely studied a subject but has not nourished their souls on God and on his word. It is for your sake that they do it. And this is not just true of pastors. This is true of all of us. If you are, whether you are a single man, a single woman, whether you are married, whether you're a teenager, whatever influence God has given you, whatever influence you hope to gain to serve others well, it is going to require that you first put yourself under the word of God, that you nourish your heart and your mind on God and on his word. Nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Verse 7, it is not just knowing what you know or what studying with God's word. It is also rejecting certain things. He says in verse 7, but reject profane and old wives' fables. Here he is, he is talking about those things that will simply distract. Those things that are speculative doctrines that are merely going to distract us from the job at hand. Here he has certain things in mind in in Timothy's context. In our context, there will be other things, maybe some similar things, but there will be other things that distract us. Perhaps it is the endless amount of Christian conspiracy theories that are populated online. Fear-inducing YouTube videos, issue-oriented discernment blogs and websites that do next to nothing to build up your soul, but only to propagate fear and anger and worry about what might be happening, what might come. Some of the most important decisions you will make as a Christian isn't just what you choose to feed on, it is what you choose to ignore. And so Paul here, he says, look, you need to nourish your soul on these things and look, these speculative old wise fables, these, 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 theory, these, these things over here, just let them go. They do not warrant your attention. You do not need to worry about them. Reject speculative distractions. Third, is here he calls us to, uh, pastors in particular, but all of us must train ourselves for godliness, verses 8 and 9. For bodily exercise profits a little, 
But godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Here, this is a a forceful command. He is saying, telling us, train yourself in this way. It's a trustworthy saying. It draws on the image of an athlete in the gym. Gaining strength so that they can be faster, so that they can be stronger, so that they can go, go the distance. And Paul isn't dismissing bodily exercise. He, ad- he admits, he knows there is physical value to it. He knows that the value that there is for us physically as we exercise There's mental benefits, there are health benefits, there are all sorts of benefits that we are gaining better and better knowledge of of what it looks like. But Paul wants us to understand, and this is absolutely important in our image and health-obsessed culture, physical training, physical training is going to benefit you, but it will only benefit you for this life. And it will only benefit you for a part of this life. But godliness, training yourself in godliness, that is not just of this earthly value. That is of eternal value. This this life is going to be here and it's gone. You will have it for a brief time and it will flip through your fingers without you ever being able to grasp it and control it. But godliness that will lead and will bring promise for the next. This life is short. It is so short. It is so brief. The Bible describes it as a vapor. And if we put all of our effort on building up this physical body of making sure this is the most fit it can possibly be and we give no attention to godliness, then we have missed the boat. Friend, give yourself to physical training. Grow faster. Grow stronger. But give yourself even more to training in godliness. The benefit will be for you not only for this life, but for every day in eternity. Christ himself promises to reward it. And he gives us this reason. Why should we pursue this exercise of godliness, this training in godliness? Verse 10, for to this end... Now, Paul transitions. He's been saying, you do this, you do this, you do this, but now he includes himself. For to this end, we both, that's you and I, Timothy, you and I, we both labor and suffer reproach, or that is, we both labor and strive, we both labor and fight, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach Paul describes the work of those in leadership, those who are going to lead the church. He describes it as those who are laboring and striving. The image is of someone who is working to the very last ounce of their strength. It's it's what some of you do who go in, you lift weights, and you lift, and you lift, and you lift, and then when you've reached what you think might be your end, you lift one more time, and the bar is shaking as you're trying to get it up. 
It's, it's walking or running that extra mile, feeling it the whole time. It's working an extra hour when you're not sure you have it. It's spending yourself to completion. That's what Paul is describing here. Paul understands that the work of serving Jesus to which Timothy is called is going to demand his last ounce of strength. It is not easy. But Paul doesn't say, look, you need to just work and work and work. Paul isn't, he is not coaching Timothy like a, like some of you may have coached a son or a daughter who is running. You know, you get in the car and they are running and you're driving alongside them. And when they get tired, you're like, no, keep going. You can do it. You can finish. Meanwhile, you're just coasting along. Need some water? All right. I'm just gonna, I'm here. I'm here. It's really nice and comfortable in here. I got the heat on. I got the air conditioning on. Whatever season, time of the year it is. That's not the way Paul's doing it. He's not encouraging Timothy from the comfort of his lazy boy. We both are doing this. This is what Christians do together. And what sustains and evokes this kind of service is faith. The faith that we have in, that, in, in God. Yeah, he is the living God. Because our God is not dead. He has risen. He is alive. He is not merely some figurine on our mantle. He is not merely a a wooden God that is placed there. He is not merely a crucifix. He is not merely a picture. He is alive and he is maintaining all things, ruling over all things providentially right now by the word of his power. He is living. He is active. And he sees and he knows. We serve a living God. And because Christ is alive, Paul will write at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that because Jesus has risen from the grave, therefore, continue working hard because knowing this, that your labor is not in vain. Because God is alive. Because Christ is alive. And because Christ is the Savior. He is a sufficient Savior. He is the Savior of all men. There is no other Savior in the world. There is no other name in heaven by which men and women can be saved. It is Christ, and it is Christ alone. There is no one outside of Christ. Jesus is not the Savior only of some small group of people. He is not the Savior as as the gods of Rome were the Roman gods who had influence and authority, but only within the bounds and authority of of the Roman Empire. Christ is the Savior of all people, the only Savior. But more than this, He is the Savior in particular of especially those who believe. That is why He is sufficient to save all. He saves those who trust in Him. And so we as individual Christians pastors and missionaries, we give of ourselves because of him to advance that message, to advance the gospel of Christ Jesus. We all spend and serve to see men and women come to know faith in Christ. Friend, if you are 
If you are not a Christian here this morning, that is what Christians ultimately ground their faith in. That there is no other Savior outside of Jesus. Let me back up. For you to even call Christ a Savior tells you something about how God views you, about how the Bible views you. That you are someone who needs to be saved. You must be rescued. Rescued from what? From our sin, from our guilt. See, you and I, we we have lived life according to our rules. We have done what we want to do. We have lived according to our own wisdom. For our own ends. And certainly we have possibly tried to be good people along the way. But you have, without a doubt, broken God's law and are thus guilty before him. Christ gives the two great laws in Matthew. In Mark 28, we are told that the greatest command is to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with all of our soul. And to love, the second, is we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. When you got clothed this morning, were you thinking of how can I show glory to God with my clothing? How could I show love to others? Or were you thinking, what will so-and-so think of me? Does this, does this look good? Does this look attractive? Does this like, accent my best thing? Does this, is this my color? Is this, what, how does this make me look? When you look up old photographs, of you with a group of people, where does your eye go to first? We are self-centered people looking toward ourselves, wanting what's best for ourselves. When we have been created for our God, by him and for him, friend, we will answer to him. For we have sinned, not just someone against someone who is like us, We have sinned against him who is infinitely worthy, infinitely high, infinitely holy. And we will answer to him one day as our judge. And the only salvation, the only hope we can have for forgiveness is found in Jesus, the only Savior. Friend, I would encourage you, if you have never trusted in Christ, if you do not even know what that means, talk to me after the service. I'd love to connect with you this week so that you can, you can know what that looks like. You can know what it means to follow after Jesus, to turn and trust in him. This is what he calls of pastors. These are the qualities. But then he lays out some expectations. What is Timothy? What are pastors and church leaders to do? Verse 11 and 12 Verse 11, he says, these things command and teach. That is, here is this this call. They are to leverage their authority and to do it well. And it's these things. It's not whatever you like. It's not whatever you think. It's it's these things. It's the word. We submit our lives and our commands and our authority to the word of God. Leverage their authority well. And then he goes on in verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Here, in Timothy's day, one was not truly an adult, was not truly respected until they were about 40 years old. 
Most scholars seem to think that Timothy was somewhere between 30 and 37, 38, somewhere in that range. So he was just shy of having this this place in life of being considered a respectable person. And Paul is telling him, look, don't let anyone despise your youth. In our day, it's, it's different. Youth is desired, age is not so much desired. And Paul tells Timothy, look, let no one despise your youth. Don't let anyone despise you because of your age. And on one level, the question is, okay, how can I control what other people think of me? That's impossible. Is he supposed to dye his hair gray? Or are we in our day, you know, to smooth out those wrinkles, to kind of get some Botox, to make ourselves look a little younger? Pastors, is that what I need to do? Start putting on a wig or something to give myself some more hair? What do we need to do? No, it is it wrapped up. We're not going to let someone despise our age. We need to be an example, particularly in these areas. Be an example in our speech. The way that we talk to one another. The kind of language that we use. Any kind of communication with others. This is what pastors are, are to lead the way in. How do you talk to your coworkers, your friends, your spouse, your kids? Not just in public, not just that, to that person that respects you, but how do you talk to people privately? James warns us that not many people ought to be teachers because of how difficult it is to control our speech. But church leaders in particular are to lead the way and be an example in how they talk, whether that's publicly or in their private communication. But not only in speech, also in in conduct, how we live our lives. This gets revealed in in high-pressure situations. What do you do with your time, your money, your energy? What does your bank statement say about you? What does your browser history say that you're really interested in? Godly living isn't lived alone. So do you faithfully gather with God's people, pray with God's people? What is your way of life picture? Does it show that you value the things of the Lord? More than this, we are to be an example in love. In love. There are many who seem to have applied themselves to guarding their speech and watching their conduct, but have allowed this emphasis, this call to lead the way and be an example in love. They have allowed this to just... Go away. There are many Christians and pastors who focus so much on growing and knowing the Bible and being punctilious in every Christian practice and every good work. But their hearts have grown cold. The embers of love for God have given way to a staid formalism. John Newton once wrote, to a fellow pastor in 1779 saying this. He says, I hope your soul prospers. That is, I hope you are less and less in your own way and in your own eyes and that your heart is more and more impressed with the sense of the glory and of the grace of our Lord. Oh, with what emotions of shame and grief, of wonder, love and joy, should we look first at ourselves and then at Christ? We may be very orthodox, skilled in defense of Bible doctrine, satisfied that our church order is the very best in the world, and yet 
be lamentably cold and formal in the feelings of our hearts towards the Lord. This isn't just some outward expression of love. This, where is your heart, friend? How is your love for God? Do others sense that you love the Lord? 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us of what this looks like, even as we are called to love one another. Love is patient. Are you an example of patience? Do you love someone even when that person tries your patience? Love is kind even to those who treat you with unkindness. That is, love is not marked by a critical, fault-finding attitude. Some Christians can't be satisfied till they have found, found fault with other people. Love does not insist on its own way. Do this, or I'm done. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not hold grudges. It forgives And it rejoices because it rejoices in having been forgiven. Love rejoices with the truth. It bears all things even when it hurts. It believes all things. That is, love chooses to believe the best about someone else. Love hopes for all things. It endures all things. Brothers and sisters in Christ, anyone who would lead and influence a church needs to be an example of godly love. How are you doing with this? How are you doing this with your spouse? How are you doing this with each other? Is there someone in this room that you are nursing bitterness against? Is there someone in this room that when they approach you, there's like this internal eye roll that goes on? By your example, love them the way that God has loved you. God who knows you, if God were to find fault and criticize, oh, he would have an endless supply of material to work from. Love the way God has loved you. Be an example in faith. That's what we see next. That no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Pastors, elders, missionaries, they need to be examples in their dependence on the Lord. In their hope in the Lord. This will come through in their prayers. This will come through in their dependence on God, in their need to submit and read and study the word. Be an example in purity. Here, Paul is speaking of the inner person that is what you and I think about in our minds. This is what's going to come out in our actions. Pastors in particular need to be careful about the way they associate with people of the opposite sex. We're relating to people with all purity. Or is there flirtation going on? Are we becoming too emotionally intimate with someone who is not our spouse? What are we allowing ourselves to dwell on as we drift off to sleep? Paul knows how devastating failures in this area can be. Not only on the person, but on the entire church, on the name of Christ. The ripples of failure in these ways will go outward and affect countless lives. And so Paul goes on in verses, 14, verses 13 to 16. He'll 
urge us to devote ourselves to the public ministry. Pastors need to be devoted to the public ministry. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. You notice, only now does he finally get to these public aspects. To the public reading, to to preaching and teaching. Only now does he get to that. Why? We expect these things at the front. Paul doesn't come to Timothy and say, hey, you want to be a good servant? You want to be a good pastor? You're going to have these 10 programs. You're going to have this public output. You're going to be doing these things publicly. And if you've got all this lined up, then you're successful. That's not what Paul does. Paul starts with the private life first, and then he goes to the public. And he teaches us by example that public devotion is followed after private devotion. It is fueled by private devotion. And too often we flip those around. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, to teaching. And do you notice how ordinary that stuff is? And when you're going to a church, we want to be entertained. We want to be, we want to laugh. We want to, we want to see how much is going on. We, we want to be encouraged. We want to be inspired. We're expecting certain things. And Paul, he says nothing about any of that. He says, give attention to reading, to public reading, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on the hands of the eldership. Here he is talking particularly about how these gifts of exhortation and preaching, they were recognized and affirmed by the church, by the church's elders, as laying on of hands. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. The danger that, Tim, that Paul knows for Timothy and for every pastor is that they will grow bored with God's word. Friend, make no mistake, this happens all the time. If you yourself struggle with attention and affection for God's word, you can assume that your pastors who are sinful wrestle with those same feelings. I have talked with pastors. And I've heard from older pastors who, when encouraged to preach through the Bible, their response was, that's not really interesting to me. We can neglect God's word for other duties, other activities. There are many pastors who who have gotten sidetracked and sidelined by talking through politics and social issues and, and whatever may interest them, their personal soapbox. But Paul says, give attention to reading scripture, to preaching and teaching scripture. Make the public work of God's word, make that what you are devoting yourself to. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. That your progress may be evident to all. And then he gives us this summary statement. Take heed to yourself in verse 16. Take heed to yourself. Watch yourself. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourselves and those who hear you. We must watch ourselves if we are to serve the Lord. We must watch ourselves because it is so easy for us to deceive ourselves. I'm I'm doing these things. 
I've got all my ducks in a row. I, I, I know a lot, therefore, man, I'm good. But our hearts have grown cold. Or we have a great heart for God, some passion for him. But we have allowed our attention to his word to wane. Attention to following after him, disciplined in our lives, to wane. Watch yourselves, we are warned. Pastors and missionaries, elders, church leaders, especially because the more influence one has in a church, the more dangerous they are if they fall in these ways. Which is why he says what he says. You will, for in doing this, you will both save yourself and those who hear you. He's not talking about final salvation there. He's talking about the deliverance from failure and destruction, the agony of, and pain of failure and destruction. You will save yourself the agony and pain if you will just watch. You will save others from being disillusioned if you will just watch. The more significant someone is in the leadership of a church, the more agonizing and destructive their failure is upon the whole church. Watch your lives. Watch your teaching. Friends, with all these commands, it may seem that the spiritual health, that our spiritual health personally and the spiritual health of a church is all dependent on individuals, you and me. It's, it's, it's all on us. And if that were true, there would be no hope for any of us. And to believe that would miss everything that Paul has said up to this point. He wants us to understand that the stakes are high, and so therefore the demands for those who lead are high. Well, Paul would not have us forget that we have a Savior, a God who fights with us and helps us, and at times will fight against us so that he might help us. To him we have only to draw near and cling to. One pastor long ago wrote this, He said, my soul is like a besieged city. A legion of enemies are outside the gates and a nest of endless traitors are inside. And the traitors within, they're holding correspondence with the enemies without so that I am deceived and counteracted continually. It is a mercy that I have not been surprised and overwhelmed long ago. Without help from on high, it would soon be over with me. Indeed, it is a miracle that I still hold out. I trust, however, I shall be supported to the end and that my Lord will at length raise the siege and cause me to shout deliverance and victory. Pray for me that my walls may be strengthened and my wounds healed. Here is this older saint recognizing his desperate need, his his desperate Fragile state. Enemies outside, enemies inside. And he urges this other brother in Christ, pray for me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, pray for one another. Pray for one another for these, in, in these ways. Pray, pray not only for one's health, pray that we will grow in godliness, pray that we will grow in love, pray that we will grow in faith, pray that we will grow in dependence on God's word, that we will grow in our understanding and teaching and our submission to it. Pray these things for one another, pray for these things for me, pray these things for your elders, for our missionaries, pray these things for one another. 
For our hope ultimately isn't that if we will watch ourselves, if we will be just disciplined enough and we will buckle up and buckle down and work hard and strive hard enough, then, then we will be successful. Our hope is alone is in Christ. Our hope alone is in the Lord. Look to him this morning. Look to him for yourself. Some of you, as you examine your life this morning, you, even as these matters are applied particularly to pastors, you have felt the keen edge of the word on your own heart and soul. Where does your help come from? It will not come from yourself. It will not come within yourself. It will come through the Lord. Look to him this morning. Rest in him. And beloved, if, if these things be true, let us encourage one another in these ways. Let us help one another. Let us love one another in these ways. That we may be a church marked by our encouragement towards one another, our spurring one another on, our care for each other to do what God calls us to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Oh Lord, we, we fall so short of it in so many areas. We are not what we ought to be. We are not what we want to be. We are not what you command us to be. By your grace, we are what we are, and one day you will make us whole. Father, till then, I pray that you will come alongside, strengthen us with all grace that we may, that we may know you and that we may live for you and that we may be increasingly marked by godliness in every part. Help us, O Lord, to this end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.